in this episode of Influencers, Gregory Zuckerman, author of A Shot to Save the World. I think we're too close to this miraculous um, development of these vaccines to appreciate the enormity of it. I really do think it's modern science's greatest achievement. I believe that this pandemic is going to end, but this virus is not going away. It's going to be endemic. It's going to kind of melt into the, the background, but we're always going to have things cropping up. I write the same story all over again, over and over. I write about um, overlooked, underappreciated individuals achieving something that the experts told them they couldn't do. and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. And welcome to our guest, Gregory Zuckerman, award-winning journalist, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, and author of the new book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. Greg, nice to see you. Great to see you, Andy. So congratulations on the book. A lot to talk about. Um, You've noted that you wanted to focus on the triumphs of the triumphs, I guess I should say, of the development of the vaccine. And one thing you talked about was um, a lucky break that occurred uh, with regard to mRNA research, which occurred a couple years before the pandemic, which probably allowed for the rapid development of the vaccine. What would the world look like if the pandemic had arrived five years earlier? Do you think we'd still be waiting for a vaccine? It's a great question. So I think we're too close to this miraculous um, development of these vaccines to appreciate the enormity of it. I really do think it's modern science's greatest achievement. And to your point, the technology was not ready a few years ago. So we need to be grateful that the pandemic, that this virus emerged at a time when the scientists I write about in my book thought they had an approach that would work. They weren't sure. We're talking the end of 2019, very early part of 2020, and they turned around and they created these really effective protective vaccines. But again, a few years earlier, I don't think we would have been nearly as lucky. But there's a a few different types of science that have been applied uh, to the different vaccines. Do you want to just go through them and sort of lay person's term, which I know is your specialty? Sure. Um, so mRNA, we are familiar with that, with that uh, approach, that vaccine approach, because that created the um, Moderna as well as the Pfizer vaccines. mRNA is short for messenger RNA, which is just a molecule we have inside of us. It transports instructions from the DNA to the part of the cell where proteins are created that we live on and we depend on every day. And it was always this sort of dream of scientists to, to create mRNA in the lab. Well, if it's so important in the body, maybe we could create a synthetic version, just like there's you know sugar, natural sugar, and synthetic version of sugar. So the idea was, well, if we could create mRNA in the lab, we could tell our bodies to create any protein. And that was the idea. That's the gist of the mRNA approach. We is a vaccine. It sends a message. And the message, obviously, in this case, is an instruction for the body, the immune system, to create the protein. The protein, in this case, is the spike protein. So like any other vaccine, it's an education for the body. Um, and the other approach I write about, the adenovirus approach, that led to the J&J, as well as the um, AstraZeneca vaccines. That's a really interesting one, too. That one also took years in making. And I write about how, the, how that began, really, with the HIV effort to, to solve HIV. We haven't figured that one out yet, but they shifted these scientists and said, okay, we can't do HIV, but we're going to get a vaccine for COVID. Yeah, Dan Baroque, one of the scientists working on that later endeavor I spoke to has been, and you're right, been working on it for a very long time. 
But switching back to mRNA, you do focus a lot on Moderna, um, which, which could have been one of the biggest losers in the race for the vaccine, ended up being a, a big winner. How much credit should the Moderna CEO get here? It sounds like you know, his background as a salesman was sort of key in bringing this all together. Uh, yeah, he's a fascinating character. For years, people whispered about him. They suspected he was exaggerating Moderna's ability to create either vaccines or drugs. There wasn't much proof. They were a very secretive kind of firm. Um, he was very hard on his employees. You can read about it in the book. People were collapsing in the office, outside the office, at home, hitting their heads, being rushed to the uh, emergency rooms. He was firing people left and right. Very difficult. Uh, and yet inspirational, too, and hard driving. And he had a vision. His vision was that mRNA was going to save save lives. And he felt he needed to push his people hard. He's a little bit of a, of a Steve Jobs kind of character in, in that regard. And he said, guys, one day we're going to be the ones to step up in, in a crisis. And he was right. And maybe it takes somebody like that. And like you said, he's a great salesman. And he raised billions and billions for Moderna over the years without any proof of concept. And people were jealous. There were a lot of envy in the industry. But turns out that that money was well spent and people made a lot of money investing in Moderna. Yeah, and I heard, you know, whispers in Boston, in that biotech community about him for a while, just what you're sort of saying, Greg, and, and even while they were sort of getting up to speed that, you know, I mean, maybe charlatan is too strong a word, but there were serious doubters. Do you think those people, um, you know, are sort of eating crow right now? So Andy, in my book, I people compared him to Elizabeth Holmes. They said, just like Theranos, uh, there's nothing there to this company, Moderna. And, you know, you can understand it to some extent. They didn't have any proof. They'd spent years working on drugs. And I write in the book, they gave up on, on making mRNA work for drugs. They had to pivot to vaccines because it wasn't working with drugs. And vaccines is not a really popular area for a lot of pharmaceutical companies. So are they eating crow? Yes. Um, but, you know, there is some reason why they were skeptical all those years. But in the end, they were wrong. Right. Operation Warp Speed. Where do you come out on that? I mean, this was a Trump administration program, um, controversial. There were some, let's just say, colorful people um, steering it. Uh, but was it effective, Greg? So like most every other topic in society today, it's sort of black and white, me against you. Either Operation Warp Speed saves everything and we have to give Donald Trump all the credit or it was useless. I come down somewhere in the middle, meaning that Operation Warp Speed was very helpful. There were a lot, there's a lot of money that was given to these companies, resources too, um, little parts that were necessary from all over the country that were brought to the, the necessary spots um, by Operation Warp Speed uh, um, uh, employees. But you also have to remember that Warp Speed made an early bet on a different vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine. It did not give money to Moderna early on when it was desperate for money. And Moderna, as recently as, as May 2020, was running out of money and couldn't get money from the government, couldn't get money from private industry, from public, from foundations, from Merck. They, they went to Merck. And they were almost unable to create these vaccines. We, one more reason to be grateful for, for what happened. So Operation Warp Speed was very helpful. In the end, Moderna did get a lot of money from Operation Warp Speed. Others did too. But I, I, you don't want to save all due to Warp Speed, the success of, of these remarkable vaccines. Yeah, I want to turn a, a bit to the current state of the vaccine and the pandemic. Um, what is your take on, on where Pfizer stands right now? Um, did they lose an opportunity to grow their own strong in, independent brand 
or are they in fact in better shape for having everything in-house to lead further mRNA uh, research? So Pfizer is an interesting story because they too almost couldn't pull this off early on BioNTech, which created this vaccine, the German company I write about in the book. They went to, Ugar Sahin went to a senior executive, senior scientist at Pfizer and said, hey, let's work on a COVID-19 vaccine. And they weren't interested. At the time, that was sort of the conventional wisdom. It wasn't clear this was going to be a pandemic. Um, there were other things that Pfizer was focused on. And they reminded Ugar Sahin of BioNTech that these things, these viruses, sometimes they dissipate. If you remember MERS, if you remember SARS. So it, Ugarsine had to convince Pfizer. They got on board, and to their credit, they went all out helping BioNTech, and they developed it together. And not only is it the most popular vaccine in the West, now they have a drug that they're getting closer to introducing, which seems very effective. It's going to be a real one-two punch. So Pfizer, the stock for a while wasn't really helped by all this revolutionary work with the vaccines. Lately, it's been going up. And I think people are realizing that Pfizer has a lot, has a lot to do with, this, with, with ending this pandemic. Yeah, there's the pill now, and there's the prospective uh, case where uh, the government's going to suggest that everyone gets, every uh, person in America gets a booster, a Pfizer booster as well, right? Or Moderna, um, or Moderna, and I think right. that is coming, right. And also just sort of down the road, I believe that this pandemic is going to end, but this virus is not going away. It's going to be endemic. It's going to kind of melt into the, the background, but we're always going to have crop, things cropping up, areas that aren't vaccinating. We're going to have issues. It's going to morph, and it's going to we got more strains. I'm not saying this to people, for people to be too concerned. I do think Pfizer, Moderna, and the other companies can adjust their vaccines. So you'll go in and there'll be second and third generation vaccines. You'll go into a doctor's office and get a COVID vaccine, but it'll be an all-in-one, maybe with a flu vaccine. Maybe they'll throw something else in there too. So I don't want people to be too discouraged, but the vaccine researchers that I write about, um, they're, they're trying to stay ahead of this thing. Yeah, I mean, is that a losing battle? Is it going to be like the flu? Um, are we we're going to continue to need new vaccines all the time? I mean, this seems like it's not going to just end, as you suggest. Yeah, it won't. Right. It won't. But but I, I wouldn't call it a losing battle. I think um, we'll stay ahead of it. And these vaccines are so much more effective than the flu vaccine. So if you've right. got protection of 70, 80 percent and it's even higher for hospitalization and, and death, um, it, it will allow us to return to some uh, to, to a normalcy, really, in society. You hear that other countries' vaccines are not as effective, you know, like the Chinese vaccine. I don't know where the Russian vaccine stands. There was one in, I heard there was one in Cuba that was not not effective at all. Like, why is that? Well, they use different approaches. So um, I write in the book a little bit of the, the Russian approach is a variation on the one that you mentioned with Dan Baruch and the J&J one. It's not quite as good. And frankly, we just don't have as much data that's reliable. It doesn't help that um, Putin himself didn't take the vaccine for months and months. He wouldn't take it. So um, listen, if that was the only vaccine in the world, either the Russian one or the Chinese one, I think we would all embrace it and take it. It's, mm -hmm. it's largely effective, but it's just not as effective. Uh, mRNA, as, as, as uh, revolutionary as it is, it just is so much better than these other vaccines. How come Merck and Sanofi and other companies that are known as leaders in this space were not at the fore? That's a great question. And frankly, uh, when I started researching this book, I kind of expected the vaccine giants to be the ones to save us. I mean, Merck is the one that created the MMR vaccine that we're all familiar with, the mumps, measles, rubella. They're a vaccine giant. So is Sanofi, as you say, and GSK. And yet they sort of drag their feet. I write about some internal 
uh, rift within Merck about whether to pursue a vaccine for COVID-19 or not. Uh, GSK and Sanofi teamed up, but their approach isn't quite there yet. Um, I would argue that vaccines until this past year are not a really sexy area for vac- for big pharmaceutical companies. Um, you get you get one every you know few years or one year, once a year, once a lifetime maybe. It's just so much you can charge for a vaccine, and as a result, I think the big pharmaceutical companies had mixed feelings about chasing after a vaccine for COVID nineteen. There's no money there. There is, as we're seeing that this past year, but at the time it wasn't clear. And listen, you put all this work into it, they, and, and they've done this. Merck has chased vaccines in the past for things like Zika and, su- and such that have, have dissipated, have gone away, and they wasted tons of money, um, resources, et cetera, opportunity cost was it was high. So if, if you're going to chase after a vaccine and when you don't even know if there's going to be a need for it by the time you develop it, it's a risky business proposition. Right. Moderna just recently announced an agreement with Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance, to ship more vaccine doses to areas around the world that are still behind um, in 2022. Is this too little too late? I think it's popular to criticize Moderna. You see how much money they're making. Um, There were always these suspicions about them. I think in the back of people's minds, they remember that, that those, those questions and they're eager to criticize Moderna. I'm not here necessarily to defend them, but I do have to note that they didn't have a partner. Unlike BioNTech, which worked with, with Pfizer, Moderna couldn't find a partner. Merck turned them down. So they had to do it all themselves. And they've been taxed. They've been going to the limit. I know the people internally, they um, believe that they, they wish they had been able to produce more, but their vaccine supplies were scooped up by the West. They paid the most and they got there early. And now they're trying to help elsewhere. Is it too little too late? I would say it's, it's slow and happening, but I also understand what's going on internally within Moderna. They are just destroyed physically, um, psychologically. It's been a really difficult year, even though they've made a lot of money. By the way, you just solved a little mystery in my brain, Greg. Beyond tech, that's how you pronounce it? You know, there are different ways of pronouncing it. Even internally, they pronounce it differently. But yes, that's why I pronounce it beyond tech. You can't go wrong that way. It's like Tesla and Tesla. We asked the people there how to pronounce it. They said either. Really? That's funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, so um, what about mRNA research? Where do you think the next breakthrough is going to come from there? And how will this change the development of future vaccines? So there's a lot of excitement now about what mRNA can do besides COVID-19. Um, Ugar Sahin and BioNTech have been working on cancer vaccines for many years. They're very excited to take the billions they're making right now and shift and focus on other pathogens, ailments, um, and so is Moderna. So we're talking about everything from um, lupus and MS turning off the immune system, just like we've been able to turn on the immune system, per- perhaps for autoimmune kind of issues. Um, malaria, some people are going after. Um, Dan Baruch, as you mentioned, AIDS. Um, so some of these same vaccine um, specialists, um, revolutionary pioneering um, researchers that I write about in my book are shifting to all kinds of new challenges. Now, I want to caution just a little bit because until this past year, mRNA has proved pretty disappointing when it comes to drugs. And there are some vaccines coming, I believe, for things like um, RSV and CMV, some viruses that are very lethal and harmful for some people. But I want to have a little bit of caution in terms of revolutionizing the world. But I'm excited about the future. Um, I want to ask you about vaccine hesitancy. As someone who intricately knows how these vaccines came to be, what do you make of these continued conspiracy theories around them? And how much are they hurting uh, efforts to get everyone vaccinated. 
So Andy, I speak to a lot of vaccine hesitant audiences and um, I enjoy doing so. There's always um, a split. There are some people who are reasonable and cautious um, and for good reasons they're, they're wary. Um, I get it. Um, these vaccines were developed in 330 days from the time the sequence was revealed until they were authorized. And historically, that's just remarkable. I mean, um, the average vaccine took 10 years until last year and the fastest was four years. So here we are coming in 330 days. So I understand the, the wariness and mRNA has never been proved effective. Um, that said, one of the reasons I wrote my book is to show that it was years of research. It wasn't done quickly. They didn't cut corners in any way. Um, what we've been able to do, and partly thanks to Warp Speed, was we were doing things simultaneously. We were developing, testing, and manufacturing a vaccine. That's never been done before. Why would you spend billions of dollars to manufacture a vaccine if it's not even authorized or approved yet? No one ever did it historically. So those are the kind of reasons why I think some people were hesitant, and I think they should um, be reassured by the fact that there were corners cut. And this process, this research, these vaccine approaches took years. And that's partly why I wrote the book. Now, in terms of conspiracy uh, uh, people, conspiracists, you know, you're not going to make much headway there, sadly. Yeah, right. And some of them, I think, are just waiting for all of us who got vaccinated to sprout horns or something. And they'll say, see, I told you. Well, yes, and they're willing to wait years for that. Yes. Yeah, right, exactly. Hey, you said something that these companies are making a lot of money, right? But but all the vaccines are free. So how are they making all this money, Craig? Well, uh, the vaccines are free to us, but in terms of charging the, the American health system. And that actually raises the question of the new pills that are coming, which are going to be very effective. But uh, societal uh, costs are very high. So a regimen for the coming COVID-19 pill from Pfizer is about $1,700, whereas the vaccines are much cheaper. So we want to be a little cautious about embrace having everyone um, shift from vaccines to the drugs. Society-wise, it's very expensive. And so the pills, just to follow up on that, like the Pfizer pill, you would, instead of getting a vaccine, theoretically, take a pill, which would provide you immunity? Theoretically, the danger is um, you need to be diagnosed with COVID. And the problem there is, and, and I've talked to people, and you probably have too, I worry about long COVID. So in other words, if you're going to say, yeah, I'm not going to get vaccinated, I'm going to wait till I get COVID, and then I'll just take these pills, there are people that are hounded by long COVID, and I've talked to them, and their brains are foggy, and they're lethargic, they're tired all the time. It's the last thing I wish on anyone. So um I wouldn't advise people to to ignore the vaccines and to just wait for a pill, even if the vaccine, even if the pill, I'm sorry, is going to be 90 percent or so effective. Right. OK, so the the patient for this would be someone who gets covid and then the pill kind of makes them better or makes them immune. Or what does it do exactly? That? It stops the, the, the um, virus spread. Progression. So it makes you healthier. Yeah. Um, right. These are these are vaccine. Yeah, I'm sorry. These are drug approaches that were developed for AIDS, which is another reason to kind of remember and learn from the a lot of efforts efforts over over the years on, on AIDS, which have, are paying off in COVID. They haven't necessarily developed a vaccine for, for AIDS, but we have all these um, drugs and vaccines thanks to some of those that revolutionary work on AIDS. But yes, these are drugs that will stop the virus from spreading and theoretically will make it um, healthy. I mean, again, I have to rem remind people that it's still better to much healthier and if you want to get out of this pandemic to get a vaccine. And you need to be tested first to know if you've got um, COVID in order to get these pills. And just to get back to the payment thing, you said the healthcare system. So does that mean the government essentially is paying the insurance companies for, for vaccines? Or is that sort of 
how it, how it works. So you're the, the, I'm not the, sure. Frankly. It's got to yeah. be, I guess, right? I mean, in other words. Yes, uh, yes, for right. now. Yes. And at some right. points, the insurance companies. And, you know, there is talk about insurance companies saying, well, um, if you're not vaccinated, why are we paying this expense to take care of you? Maybe right. those people. I mean, in some other countries, you're seeing that already. It's Thank really you. interesting. I mean, that could become a workplace issue where, you know, or an insurance issue. If you, are you a smoker? Check, you know, guess what? You're going to pay higher rates. Um, I've, been, I've been surprised insurance companies haven't done that until now. Maybe they will at some point. Right. You've been skeptical, my understanding, Greg, of the, that you've been skeptical of the so-called lab leak theory um, when it comes to Wuhan and China and the origins of COVID-19, the idea that it came from the Wuhan lab. Um, but the pandemic's origin has been really difficult to pin down definitively. How much have you focused on that question in your reporting? And do you think we'll ever have a clear answer there? So I am skeptical of the lab leak. I'm even more skeptical that China created this vaccine. Um, and my reporting is based on talking to top virologists, um, structural biologists, et cetera, around the world. And the view is that it's a little bit like HIV. HIV, for years, there were suspicion about that as well. People accused uh, the CIA, the U.S. government, the U.S. Army, KGB of creating this virus because there was no natural host. There was no evidence of the animal that had the original virus. And then they found one. It took years, about a decade or so. And likewise, we haven't found the host here, but I think it will be uh, identified. It takes a little bit of time. Um, those people who say it was created by China, and then they said, well, it's, it won't spread in China. We'll only, only make it spread elsewhere. That seems preposterous. And the lab leak is a possibility. I'd say it's a 5 or, or a 10% possibility. But if you just remember that um, animals, we're encroaching on, on, on wild kingdom all the time, cutting down trees. There are jump, viruses are jumping all the time from, from animals. We start with SARS. We start with the earlier uh, coronaviruses, MERS. Um, others. So to expect this one to be uh, unusual and surprising and to be, have been leaked, it's possible, but unlikely. I'm an Occam's razor kind of guy. Right. Is, is the wet market, does that come into play, you think, or is that kind of a blind alley? No, I think there's a good possibility that it's spread there. I'm not sure it originated there necessarily, but in, historically, that's how the first one uh, spread too. the first SARS in China in a wet market. There's a good chance that that's how it spread. Right. In, um, in, in recent weeks, well, we talked about the, 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 the pill a little bit, I, and I, I just one last follow-up question on that. And, and so is that a big breakthrough or not? I think it is. I think it's going to be a, kind of a one-two punch that's really going to help us get out of this pandemic as long as people continue to get vaccinated. But we've got this backup of p pills that are quite effective. Um, I think um, modern science is going to be fixing this thing and addressing this thing and helping us out of this, this pandemic. Yeah. What do you make of, of Tony Fauci? I mean, is he this American hero or, you know, listen, we're both journalists. We're like, ah, he's not all that. Or is he all that, Greg? What do you think? I think Tony Fauci is a hero. Uh, his whole life is dedicated to public health. It's a remarkable and, and quite frankly, just depressing idea that we as a people or part of our, 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 our country have turned on those who look out for us. Is he perfect? No, he advised us early on not to wear masks. He couldn't have been more wrong about that. There were all kinds of mistakes he and, and other scientists have, have made. But um, for Tony Fauci and his colleagues at the NIH, others, they could have quit years ago and made a fortune in, in private industry. And they didn't. Why? Because they look out for our health and they're trying to 
um, give us good advice and, good, and guidance. And, and he's also pushing the research and he, he behind the scenes made a lot of contributions in, so, in terms of these vaccine approaches that I write about in my book. So we, have, we owe him and, and his colleagues a great deal of, of gratitude. They're not perfect whatsoever. They make mistakes left and right, but who doesn't? Yeah, I think you're so right making that point that of course he could have become the top scientist at a giant pharma company be anonymous and very wealthy living in a nice suburb and all that but he decided and then we would criticize him for the revolving door and how dare they go for right. private industry after a public yeah it, right. they get it criticized either way yeah after everything that's happened over the past 18 months do you think we're better equipped now better prepared for the next pandemic well, I think so, given that mRNA has been proven and we figure out how to manufacture it efficiently, um, distribute it. Took us a little while, but um, we've learned a lot of lessons in terms of trials as well. So mRNA, now we can depend on. So the next big pathogen, lethal virus that emerges, I think we can adjust and create vaccines quite quickly. Um, other lessons I don't think we've learned. I mean, as a nation, we don't look out for each other like we should um, we're a group of uh, individualists, and that's helped us arrive at these vaccines. Uh, and only in America could we these vaccines have been created. Um, granted, there's a, one from Germany, but even the German CEO I've talked to said, without American investors, venture capitalists, people rolling the dice on their approach years ago when they went public, when they were raising money, these vaccines could not have been created. So there's a lot to be proud of as an American, but there's also a lot to be discouraged about, about how we get advice from our brother-in-law or some video that we saw on YouTube as opposed to our own internist. It's pretty discouraging both for me, but also for the, the creators, the pioneers that I talked to for my book, when they see that all their hard work has led to this, this split and some people resistant and, and pointing fingers at them for their, for their efforts, it's quite discouraging. In the time left uh, that we have left here, Greg, I want to ask you a little bit about you and the process and writing books. How did you decide to do this particular book? So I was deep in my basement office in New Jersey, locked down like everybody else, and um, kind of discouraged about the world. And I thought it could be a fun project to trace and speak to the researchers, the scientists, the pioneering kind of remarkable innovators that are behind these vaccines. I didn't know at the time that they'd be proven effective, um, but I kind of made a bet that they would, and I tracked them along the way. So in some ways, it was a um, healthy distraction for me, gave me encouragement. And my book is about what went right as opposed to what went wrong. I wanted it to be an upbeat book that gives us hope about the future because these vaccine specialists, they've turned their focus on, on other pathogens and other and illnesses and viruses. And um, we're going to need them again, sadly, I think in the years ahead. And finally, Greg, so this is one of uh, several books you've written. Is there a common thread or, or how do you choose what to write about? I mean, it's such a big commitment. You know, I read the last one that you did about uh, Jim Simons was great, but you know, you're, you're kind of rolling the dice yourself in the sense that like you're picking something, you're committing to it and you hope that it resonates, right? Yeah. So Andy, um, one can criticize me because, and I only realized this after I've sort of passed in my manuscripts, I write the same story all over again, over and over. I write about um, overlooked, underappreciated individuals achieving something that the experts told them they couldn't do. And I write about that over and over again, unlike the heroes. I just happen to 
um, that resonates with me. I find that fascinating. Why is it that con conventional wisdom is so wrong so often? Uh, all my books, my, my first book was about the financial crisis and the individuals who anticipated it. It shouldn't have been these guys. Um, and then I wrote about the energy revolution. It should not have been these frackers in Oklahoma who turned this country around. It should have been Chevron and, and BP. And then, like you said, my last book, The Man Will Solve the Market, is about a bunch of scientists who don't even care so much about capitalism and business who have the greatest investment firm in history. And this time, it's a group of companies and, and approaches that were overlooked, mRNA um, and these companies, Pfizer, notwithstanding, Biontech is the key person, key company behind the vaccine, Moderna and the others I write about. So um, I'm taken with that theme. I think um, uh, it's one that you can learn a lot from and hopefully readers enjoy it as well. Well, uh, as one reader, I certainly have, Craig, and so uh, keep on doing it. I didn't realize that. I didn't notice that theme throughout. So now um, I will be noticing <sighs> that when, uh, if and when you I, do another one. Yeah, I didn't notice it myself until I passed it in. But uh, yeah, I love like that theme. A little bit of a David and Goliath, but I think there are lessons that can be learned um, about overcoming um, obstacles and criticism, even and skepticism from um, the ex the so-called experts. Greg Zuckerman, author of the new book, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.